welcome to uh, Sparks of History. Uh, we're pleased today to have um, renowned historian and author, uh, Adam Zamoyski. Um, Mr. Zamoyski, Adam, um, is a um, historian who has written extensively on the history of Poland, Russia, and, and France. Um, he has been uh, honored by many organizations and associations worldwide. Mr. Zamoyski is also a member of the advisory board of the Page of History Foundation dedicated to the memory of the banished Jewish communities in Poland since 1991. And it's a pleasure um, to have you here today. And today's topic is going to be focused on Napoleon. And um, Mr. Zamoyski has written a number of uh, authoritative works um, on Napoleon, uh, including Moscow 1812, Napoleon's Fatal March on Mas Moscow, as well as Napoleon, the man behind the myth. So I'd like to start today um, a little bit about your background and how you got interested in these specific areas of history? Um, well, my background is, uh, personal background is that uh, um, I'm, I'm sort of typical of, of the, the, the Polish diaspora, I suppose. Uh, I was born in New York completely by chance because my mother had to be there to renew her DP papers after the war. Um, but I was brought up in, in London, um, but also uh, around Europe a lot. Um, and my parents uh, left Poland at the beginning of the war, my father with the Polish army, or what was left of it, and um, my mother as a refugee. Um, and um, a mixed background, my, my father was born before the First World War in right out in what is now Belarus. Um, and my mother was um, born in, in the German partition of Poland, uh, but also before the First World War. So a lot of languages were spoken at home. Um, my father was a tremendous phylocemite. He, um, and so we, we, we always had... Um, um, at, at home, we had a, a, a lot of um, contact with um, parts of the Polish Jewish diaspora. And um, my father later, um, because he was a great horse expert, started um, the Arab breeding, Arab horse breeding in Israel um, and oh. visited several <laughs> times. So, um, Fascinating. Uh, somehow, Palestine. Uh, Palestine. Yes. And um, I, um, I, you know, so I've, I've always felt, um, um, you know, that we were in our home, you know, there were, there were, um, there were all these, these Polish Jews who'd ended up in London in the diaspora and they were such wonderful jokers and they were colourful and intelligent. And I, um, so they were very much part of my, um, my life and, and, and opened up, I think, uh, you know, a more a slightly wicked sense of humor about history, um, which I think, I think that's where it comes from. Uh, because, 
when I look at history and when I, as I do my research, and I think this is what differentiates me from a lot of historians, um, and what annoys me in them is that people regard historical figures as though they were in another dimension. Uh, you know, I read through um, this really brilliant and authoritative and in-depth, the absolutely um, definitive biography of Metternich that came out um, <clears throat> recently. Um, but the trouble is that the author treats Metternich as though he were a kind of different category of human being. Now, the point is that everybody we read about or study in history is just a man or a woman. And I'm sorry, they picked their noses, they farted and they belched like everybody else. They also made fools of themselves like everybody else. They tripped over, they knocked over things, um, they said stupid things because none of us are perfect. And I think this is where one, where I, I don't know, this is how I look at things and that's why, um, and I think this makes one, allows one to understand historical figures better if one does treat them without this reverence. So anyway, that's, that's my background and, um, and it's partly because of my irreverence, I suppose, that I've um, kept away from academia um, and, um, you know, and I have my differences with, with, with many, um, with many academics. Anyway, there, there we go. That's my okay. background. Okay. Thank you. What, what drew me to Napoleon was, again, well, partly because um, my publishers and, um, wanted me to write about that, but partly also because, and I wouldn't have agreed because there are so many books about Napoleon, um, had it not been for the fact that I thought, well, Yes, I would really like to find out who this guy really was. You know, get away from La Grande Histoire by the French or the demonization of the Brits. Um, you know, the guy was just a guy. He was, um, and, you know, when you, when you un get close to him and you really begin to realize that he was a tremendously insecure, though brilliant man, um, that you begin to realize why he made the mistakes he made um, and why, you know, what spurred him on in many ways um, and what brought down his, uh, brought about his downfall. So I think that, that you know, one, one has to get under the skin and into the, into the minds of people rather than treat them like actors on a stage. What, what, what kind of sources do do you use to determine that to get into the minds of somebody? Is it is it the nation of the actions and his writings? Um, you know, so it's I mean, it, it, you're not it's not psychoanalysis, but it's more just trying to understand the person. Well, in the case of Napoleon, what's um, uh, very useful is that. Um, first of all, what's very useful is that everything is 
is, is published. So one doesn't have to go traveling around the world and getting into libraries. And as we know, nowadays, uh, there are more and more greater and greater difficulties in actually handling the documents. They try and give you microfiches and microfilms and, and, and online stuff, which are never, never quite the same. Anyway, uh, the great thing about Napoleon, if you want to get into his mind, is that he fancied himself uh, as most educated people in the 18th century did, as a bit of a writer, philosopher, theorist. And because he was sitting around in garrison duty doing absolutely nothing um, for several years, um, he, uh, he wrote, and he wrote all sorts of things. He tried his hands at novels. He tried his hands at short stories. Um, he also wrote up his opinions of various books he read, because he was an autodidact in many ways. And he, um, and, and this is very important because, you know, you, you suddenly see that he he reads a book he reads a book by Rousseau, for instance, mm -hmm. and then writes down various notes about it. And you suddenly realize the guy's actually got the wrong end of the stick on some things, you know. <laughs> uh, but, but then he, he he does these extraordinary things, like he, he he you know, he has a he has a problem with with sex, um, which many intelligent in fact most intelligent people do as they hit adolescence because you know physical sex is is completely the opposite of how one feels one's mind should be developing and um i dare say every every adolescent has gone through this but what napoleon does is that while being rather priggish and disapproving of his comrades as his colleagues um various activities uh, decides uh, as a young officer um, to uh, you know see what it's all about so he picks up a prostitute um, and then because of the sort of person he is the next morning he feels he should write down and his thoughts about it all and so you know we've got this glorious thing uh, and how many cases of that have you got in history where the guy writes up his first sexual experience and reveals um, his unbelievable ineptitude, first of all, in picking up the girl, be in, in, in you know, he, he really, um, you know, he basically says, what's a nice girl like you doing thing like this, which is not what he you know, a, a, right. a fallen woman <laughs> wants to hear, you know. Uh, and, and he sort of keeps her chatting out in the cold. And it, it, it then turns out she has to sort of drag him into bed. Um, and, and of course, um, so, you know, there's a huge richness of sources. Um, did he, did he, and then publish, of course, did uh, he publish, did he publish like a Disraeli? Was any of his attempts at writing novels or short stories? No. Published? No. No. No, you no, never never published them. But but it was very extraordinary that in eighteen fifteen, as he was preparing to go into you know, to leave Paris, 
he actually went through all his private papers and he burnt a lot of stuff. But he actually put all these rather inept, um, youthful writings, including this ridiculous novel, which is a, a kind of, you know, psychiatrist's dream. Um, he puts them in a box and 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 um, gives them for safekeeping to um, uh, his his um, his step uncle Fesh. You see, so there is this absolute treasure trove of stuff uh, which was not written. Um, uh, I think it was you know he was working things through in his mind for his own um, intellectual. Um, you know, development. So that that's a great thing. The other thing is, obviously, because he was such a remarkable man and such a dominant figure in um, Europe, uh, you know, everybody who came anywhere close to him it, it did tend to write up their impressions and, and conversations and so on. Uh, and you know, and then there are marvelous things that uh, some of his uh, closest collaborators, such as Corbacerès, uh, would note down their in the evenings the the their conversations they'd had about various subjects. So um, there's no end of material. Uh, obviously, one has to be very careful, and you know, particularly with the the things that were published later uh, because people were either trying to rehabilitate themselves um, with uh, politically with one side or the other. Uh, so, so there's a, you know, one, one has to take some things with a pinch of salt and, and show, you know, be very careful, but, but it's all there. It's wonderful. Amazing. Well, what, what, what would you say is, is, is his lasting legacy, the legacy of Napoleon? If we look at it, you know, from, from our times today. Well, well, there are, there are two legacies. One, of course, is the Napoleonic myth, which dominated the 19th century, dominated the Romantic movement, um, was certainly hugely instrumental in encouraging revolutionaries in 1830 and 1848 um, and right up into the 1860s and so on, um, and possibly later. Uh, and and certainly influenced European politics right into the into the 20th century, you know, in this country, I'm sitting in Poland at the moment, you know, in this country, after all, it was not possible to differentiate um, Pilsudski, you know, there, there's a Napoleonic element, um, and whether he's trying to project a Napoleonic um, aura in some cases, or whether he's influenced, or whether other people looking at him uh, think of Napoleon, you know, it, it's all part of a, a rather um, complex, but but um, very, very um, in, important element. So th there is that impact. And it's sort of still there, you know, there are still people um, 
you know, be, being Napoleons or trying to be Napoleons. Um, and it's there in, in, in the culture of, you know, between England and France, for instance, um, it, you know, there is a lasting element which no doubt played some role in the Brexit debate. Uh, but then there's the concrete um, legacy, and that is that he was um, he was a very, very intelligent man, and he, above all, he had an extraordinary ordered mind, a logical, mathematical mind. And as he looked around the world he was born into, he just saw that things were being done rather badly and in rather stupid ways. You know, there was still the ancien regime governed by outdated institutions, outdated customs, um, religious rituals which had departed a long way from um, anything that um, the, the um, original founders of the religion seemed to have thought. And he thought that, you know, my goodness me, this whole thing needs tidying up and reorganizing. And he was a tremendous control freak as a result. And so he did, in France, create a his idea of the ideal model state. You know, the rational state that um, strikes the best balance, as he saw it, between uh, the benefit of the individual, um, but controlled by the state for the good of the individual, and the best mobilization of the state's human and physical resources for the common good and so on and so forth, but with a hierarchical structure uh, built on merit and service to the state and the community um, and so on. And that model certainly survives in France. Um, it's hardly been modified at all, even though there have been ex-constitutions passed since. Uh, but the institutions remain the same and the legal system remains much the same, and it survives, or certainly influences, uh, most of Europe and great many of the, what were formerly French colonies, and indeed um, when um, other colonies won their independence, particularly in places like South America, uh, they did take a lot of ideas from uh, his institutions. Uh, so, and, and that, those things survive to this day. And, and, uh, you know, and, and one of the reasons for, and again, mention Brexit for that was because right. the British system, um, way of life and constitution is all based on the common law, um, um, working upwards, that, that based on the individual and um, and his delegations of power to the state. Whereas most of Europe um, is happily, um, lives under the, the um, constraints of the state deciding what the individual does. Right. Um, and even classifying who the individual is. 
the um, you know uh, here in Poland in order to buy agricultural land you have to be something called a farmer <laughs> you have to be you know classified, classified as such in England and in England you buy some land and you know if you want to farm it you farm it if you right. don't you don't right. so okay. and this is I think where because obviously you you are interested in Napoleon's relationship with the Jews absolutely um, and and that comes in because, because ironically, what's so interesting is that um, DNA tests um, have shown him to belong to Group E, I think it's called, which is North Africa and the Middle East, basically. And so originally... Um, and that's true of many people in Italy and Corsica and, and right. Sardinia and those islands. He was born but, in Corsica, um, correct? He was born in, right? Yeah, in Corsica. And, and it's you know, entirely possible that he had um, Jewish origins, you know, <laughs> just, you know that, that somewhere he came up. Um, so, um, um, but anyway, his... First of all, he had no consciousness because there were no Jews in, on Corsica. Uh, and there were very few Jews as such in most of France, except in the northeast provinces in Alsace-Lorraine and, and the areas bordering Germany. So he didn't actually come into contact with Jews, or, and I don't think he was aware of you know, what you might call the Jewish question or you know, the, the, the whole question of... Of, of them, of you know, the, the Jewish community as a as a um, as a fact, until he came to power, and uh, really until he he went to places like Strasbourg, and suddenly he um, became aware of the fact that you know, there were large numbers of Jews sticking together in a community, um, and engaged in a, and this was the crunch point, engaged in, in usury, which is something he had an intense dislike of because his upbringing, he left Corsica at the age of nine, right. but um, at home, he, you know, his father was an upwardly mobile snob of crashing proportions. And he had huge schemes to enrich himself, which kept going wrong. And there was an acute shortage of cash in the Buonaparte family, as there was on Corsica, because Corsica wasn't really a cash society. It was a barter society. But because um, um, Carlo Maria Buonaparte, his father, mm -hmm. uh, wanted to become... Um, a French nobleman and wanted his children to uh, get into the the French um, upper classes and to make careers. He needed money, and so he kept on in, uh, trying to make money. And there's an awful lot of correspondence about money in the early letters of the the, the clan and. Um, 
And when Napoleon is a, a, a young officer, um, his, his father uh, dies and he's, um, his mother and his, his siblings are in Corsica and they're short of cash and they're all sorts of ventures they invested in. And so the young Napoleon is endlessly writing letters and trying to go and lobby ministers to get some um, a, a subsidy and, and, and compensation for this and subsidy for that and so on. And he had a, a lifelong insecurity about cash. And when he became mm -hmm. emperor, he had these vaults full of gold under the Tuileries. And he never traveled anywhere without um, paper rolls with, um, with a whole lot of gold Napoleons um, inside them. Uh, he, and he, one, one of the reasons he couldn't get, and this is why he lost ultimately with the Brits and, and yeah. why he, his continental system didn't work because he thought he was going to bankrupt Britain. Uh -huh. um, okay. And he couldn't understand that he would keep borrowing money because he hated borrowing money. He thought borrowing money was, was really, you know, it couldn't work. Money was money for him. And so he comes across, suddenly there, there's this strange ethnic religious group, tightly knit. A lot of them speaking German anyway. Um, and so on the one hand, he's worried that they could provide a kind of fifth column and be spies um, for the German enemies or Austrian enemies. Um, and on the other hand, they're all engaged in this trade, which for him is A, incomprehensible, and B, fundamentally, it, it's, it, 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 um, it scratches his worst sort of itches. Um, so he, like everything else in France, he decides he has to sort of sort them out and, and try and categorize them and uh, involve them. And he certainly, there, there are, he's quoted as saying some frightful things about their blood being blood suckers and so on. Um, but I think that has nothing to do with any racial or kind of um, ethnic. It's about his view of this can't be right. This people who are living off, as he sees it, the unfortunate um, debts that other people, honest working Frenchmen, <laughs> have fallen into. You know, it's the old trope, you know, the never-ending, the 